Everyone deserves a chance in the driver's seat. For GM and Revolt, that means leading the way on the road to an all-electric future and envisioning a world with zero crashes, zero tailpipe emissions, and zero congestion. GM's committed to making EVs accessible for everybody. That means you too. So what are you waiting for? GM's got the keys. You grab the wheel. Learn more about an all-electric future and the 000 initiative at GM.com. GM, everybody in. Welcome to Wow Black, a seriously opinionated podcast, bringing you the real and raw on anything happening while black. If black culture's there, we're there. If you're pissed or empowered, then let's talk about it. Ride with us on this all black everything. Everybody, welcome back to Wild Black. Welcome back. We're so glad to have you with us again. Like always, you got Vince here. And Art's in the building. We're both back together again into season two. Before we get started, just wanted to let you know that today's session was recorded at DRS Studios. You can hit them at drsatl.com. Today's topic, I don't have any any witty intros for this one. (laughs) You know, while Black, we have a lot of episodes that give you information. Some of them are a lot of fun. Some of them are more serious. I think this one is probably one of the more serious ones, just based on the topic, which, of course, you don't know yet, but we'll tell you in a second. So the, the, question, the question I want to pose to the listeners is, if you had the opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with someone from the family that enslaved your ancestors years back, what would you ask them? What would you say to them? What would your reaction to their comments be to you? That was the question I posed on social media preparing for today's interview because it is really, really different. So, you've probably already imagined, today we are talking about slavery, but from a very different perspective than we typically talk about it. We're not necessarily talking about the hardships of slavery. We're not necessarily talking about what was done to us, for us, through us, or around us. But today we're sitting down and having a very special conversation with someone who is a descendant of a slave-owning family. And the story gets deeper than that. Um, I just want to start with this. Art, what do you think about the topic today, man? What are your thoughts on it? We got a, we got a good topic. This is a good opening. Um, it's more of a heavy topic. Uh, yeah. It's a topic that is interesting. We flip, we flip the perspective that we generally have on this head and, say, and, and look at it from a different angle. Right. Um, and I, I, I like the fact that we're going to get into it from a different angle and not necessarily the angle everybody right. of color, you know, looks at this as. So, right. so I think it gives us a different dimension or a different angle to look at uh, something that's important to any black person and, and any person of color really uh, should be, and any American, honestly. Because right. this is American history. Yep. So listeners, today's episode, we're kind of flipping it on its head a little bit. We're, we're not going to go through the normal sections that we do. We're not doing wild black shit today. We want to use this time to really get into the story and understand the perspective of, of descending from a slave-owning family. So I don't want to waste any time. I want to jump into this 
And Art's going to run you through our guest's background today. Indeed, indeed. So um, while Black welcomes the show, uh, Diana Roman. Uh, Diana has done a lot, including leading multifunctional teams uh, for P&G in both the U.S. and abroad. Uh, after her time with P&G, she worked for the Z Group, founded by Sergio Zyman, uh, the same man who invented New Coke. Uh, the Z Group was comprised of the seven top marketing professionals in the country, and her claim to fame while there was getting the Mexican president elected and repositioning Mickey Mouse, <laughs> two unrelated projects. Uh, but today, Diana is speaking from her capacity as a member of the leadership team um, at Our Black Ancestry and her relationship to our country's evil history of enslaving Africans. Uh, Diana is the president of the OBA Foundation. OBA is Our Black Ancestry and a descendant of the Harriston family, one of the largest slaveholding families in American history. Over a 200-year period, her ancestors enslaved more than 10,000 people on 42 plantations in three states. Diana is dedicated to making things right by making her family records and those of others available to help African-American researchers discover their roots. She maintains the Harrison Family Genealogy website, which is also sponsored by the Our Black Ancestry Foundation. And as a quick intro, let me also turn it over to Diana to, uh, to maybe give us a little more in-depth or a little more perspective. Um, I think you've covered everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, one thing that we thought would be really, really good to introduce Diana to you is to allow her to read an early blog entry from the Harrison Family Genealogy site and blog. And the reason she's reading this is because it does a really good job of kind of summarizing where she stands in regards to her family's history and what she's doing now to right this wrong as much as possible. So I will pass it over to Diana and let her read a little bit to you. The blog is titled A Crumpled Dynasty, and it was written in honor of my mother. It was only recently that I learned the full scope of what the Harston dynasty was and how it derived its wealth. My ancestors were among the wealthiest people of their time, not because they had the most money in the bank, but because they owned the most slaves in U.S. history. The sheer size and scope of their business boggles my mind. The Harston family owned 42 plantations in three states and enslaved more than 10,000 people. I try to imagine upbeat scenarios of day-to-day -day plantation life and how my ancestors surely must have been good to their slaves, not like the other mean slave owners. But is there really such a thing as a benevolent master? Five generations later, I struggle to comprehend what happened and how I feel in my heart to be connected to ancestors who did something I so totally abhor. In the final analysis, I can't deny my connection, but what that engenders for me is a burning desire to do something right. I recently began to wonder if my ancestors chronicled the lives of their slaves with as much meticulous detail as they did themselves. Amazingly, I found that they did. They recorded all of the marriages, deaths, and the births of the 10,000 plus people they enslaved in ledgers that span a 200-year period of time. Once I got over the ugliness, I realized that these ledgers are a gold mine of genealogy. While the Harston family was among the biggest centers of slavery, their wealth allowed them the luxury of rarely selling slaves. 
which means they rarely broke up families. Their ledgers provide documentation that can help so many contemporary African-American descendants discover their relationships to people past and present. It is my sincerest hope that my generation can reconcile the family issue of slavery. I am on a mission to make the contents of the Harston ledgers available online through Our Black Ancestry. This is history that belongs to all of us. It is yours and mine, black and white, slave owner, slaveholder and enslaved. We have to name it and claim it in order to move forward. Everyone deserves to know from whence they came. And it is my deepest desire to bring honor and respect to the lives of the people the Harston family might have held in physical bondage, but whose souls they never truly enslaved. That's a lot. Listeners, I know that was a, a lot to sit and listen through. I just thought it really important to be grounded in what we're talking about today. And the best way I felt to really meet Diana is to hear her own words clear and concise about her family's history, how she felt as she learned it, and how she feels living through it. Um, One of the things that she said that I really love is that we have to name it and claim it. And that's what today's episode is about. Diana's going to talk to us a lot about what it's like descending from a family that participated in the atrocities of slavery, but also, and even more so, how active in what she's doing to help to change what's happened, to helping connect families that aren't connected today. And I think it's going to be a really good conversation. And hopefully you walk away with a, a lot of information and you'll hear from me a lot less. So, Diana, reading that, what did you think? What did you feel like as you read your own words from a few years back? Um, it reminded me of the the moment that I first became inspired to do this when I went up to Chapel Hill to look at the ledgers in person. And when you look at the ledgers, it, it's hundreds of pages of hundreds of names in 15 different ledgers. And they're listed father, mother, children's names, and then their values. And what... what like monetary I, values. Yes. And... Wow. What, when I looked at those pages, I had the sensation that they were faces looking back at me right. saying, come find us, come honor us. Right. And that's what inspired me to start doing the work that I do. Right. So we, we have a lot we're going to talk about today. One thing, and you and I have talked a couple of times already. One thing I noticed as you were reading that, and it, it made me reflect on an earlier conversation and listen, we're going to get into some of the other stuff. This, this, is, this is a very personal topic for me personally because I am very much interested in understanding my own genealogy. So being able to connect some people to theirs is a passion point of mine. But one thing I noticed as you were reading is you pronounced the name Harston and other folks pronounce it Harston, correct? Can you explain just a little bit of, of the, the, the two pronunciations for us? Sure. The, the Harston comes from the Irish immigrant. He, his name was Peter the Immigrant. He's the original family member that came over to America and started um, the family. Right. Um, and it's pronounced Harston. And so after emancipation, probably <clears throat> 99% of the people that were enslaved on the plantations kept the surname. Right. But it, this was just what they did in the times. They wanted people to understand 
if they were black or white. Right. There's a so differentiation they, here. Mm-hmm. Mm. So if you're white, it's Harston. If you're black, it's Hairston. That's very interesting. And do you still see that? Because there are a lot of Harstons or Harstons. Do you still see that pronunciation live against the color line even today? Yeah. Yeah. I have one white cousin that is very active in the black Hairston community. Mm-hmm. And they call themselves the black Hairstons. Wow. Um, they, they And they want me to call them the, the black, black Hairstons. Harrison. Yeah. Got and so they have a lot of family reunions. They have a lot of conventions. And he has is on their executive board. He's very involved in the leadership of that group. And he has changed his name to Hairston. Interesting. Out of respect, you know, for all of them. All right, what are you thinking, bro? You got that look like, man. That's, I, mean, <laughs> I just kind of took myself back in time a little bit. I'm still stuck on the, the ledger with the, the, the values. The values. Yeah, the people, the names, and then the values. So I, I, I have not been able to transition my mindset from, <laughs> from there just quite just yet. Because that, that's, that's pretty heavy. It is. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but yeah. It is. <laughs> all right, so listeners, again, today's episode of Diana Roman we are talking about the Harston or Hairston family, depending on, it seems, your color. Um, we're going deep in her family today. We're going to talk about their history. We're going to talk about what's happening now. Uh, and even more importantly, we're going to talk about some of the steps that Diana is taking to reconnect people with their histories. But in typical wild black fashion, I want to base the theme of this episode on a dope quote. So, like any other time, we've got one for you. Now, again, there's going to be a lot of listening in this episode. So, buckle in while you're driving to work or while you're cleaning the house. Yeah, but working out. Right, and just ride with us. Just listen. So, today's dope quote is from James Baldwin. And you know we love from James Baldwin on this show. Yeah, we do. It is about two minutes long, and it is not me. You're actually going to hear James today, so... I want to go ahead and get that going for you now. So just listen, enjoy, think about his words in contrast with the theme of today's episode. And let's connect some people. Wahi, can you play that clip, brother? When I was growing up, I was taught in American history books that Africa had no history, and neither did I. That I was a savage, about whom the less said the better, who had been saved by Europe, and brought to America. And of course, I believed it. I didn't have much choice. Those are the only books there were. I am stating very seriously, and this is not an overstatement, that I picked the cotton, and I carried it to market, and I built the railroad, under someone else's whip for nothing. For nothing. If one has got to prove one's title to the land, isn't 400 years enough? 400 years, at least three wars. The American soil is full of the corpses of my ancestors. Why is my freedom or my citizenship or my right to live there 
At State Farm, we're committed to uplifting Black futures. In collaboration with organizations like 100 Black Men and National Urban League, State Farm provides high school students with the opportunity to learn and apply best practice strategies for saving and investing, all while offering academic support, life skills, and exposure to college access programs to prepare these students for life after high school. Check out 100blackmen.org and nul.org to donate and learn more. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Was it concealed their question now? What we are not facing is the results of what we've done. What one begs the American people to do for all our sakes is simply to accept our history until the moment comes when we, the Americans, we, the American people, we are trying to forge a new identity for which we need each other. Until this moment, there is scarcely any hope for the American dream because the people who are denied participation in it by their very presence will wreck it. So hearing what James Baldwin had to say, Art, I'll go to you first. What were your thoughts on, on hearing those couple minutes of what he had to say? You wanted to be really clear um, that it's not an overstatement, the depth at which he was speaking, especially as it related to the plight that African-Americans and people of color were in at that time. And arguably, you could say we're still in that very same situation or maybe progressively a little bit better than maybe where he was seeing that position. Right. Um, also, in the beginning, when he when he opened up and he said he was told or he was was given the impression or made to believe that um, he was a savage and he didn't have anything to 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 validate or or, or invalidate that level of narrative right. with um, within himself, right? So, if you go around believing that you are a savage. It, it, there's, there's with with no validation or no no invalidation to that. Then, then what happens? And in, in for him to kind of come out with that as being James Baldwin and transitioning into the the powerful force that he was tells me a lot about his level of resilience, and it tells us about um, how resilient African Americans are mm-hmm. mentally, mentally. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that I want I want to point out is. Today, we're going to spend some, some time talking about, and you've already heard it brought up, records of the enslaved. And one of the things that James Baldwin talks about here is when he mentions being told he was a savage, he also mentions the fact that he was told Africa had no history and neither did he. And I think that's a, a very important point given the topic today because a lot of what Diana's going to talk about is how she can help to connect us to this history because. Her family still has it, and there are other families that still have it. And while it won't provide answers to 100% of the African Americans living here today, it will provide significant answers. And we'll talk about that a little bit. Diana, what did you think about hearing the James Baldwin piece today? It reminded me of something I've recently learned about the 13th Amendment. Mm-hmm. When, when that amendment was created, it was the end of the Civil War, and the North created that amendment and handed it to the South. 
there's a little known caveat at the end of the 13th Amendment that mm-hmm. says, it, the beginning says, you know, everybody is emancipated right. and, mm-hmm. and slavery is against the law. But then it says, however, if you've been caught breaking the law, you can right. be re-enslaved right. and forced to work at a, sl- at a slave labor camp. Right. And a lot of America doesn't understand that that's what happened. Um, so the North creates this amendment with a, a clause in it, hands it to the South. The South starts creating new laws that immediately they started- Vagrancy laws. Vagrancy, like trespassing, right. loitering. Right. There was even a law in the book that if you spoke louder than the softest white woman in your vicinity, you could be thrown into oh, the wow, labor camp. I did not know that one. Oh, lots of silly, silly laws were created. And so when the slave is emancipated, the minute he sets foot off of the plantation, he's guilty of three major laws, right? Trespassing, Trespassing loitering, loitering, vagrancy. Right. And so, so now you are injected right back into the system in which you were just freed from. And it's always about money, right? Right. So the North had blown up the South. They were not going to pay to rebuild it. it. They weren't going to rebuild the railroads and the water systems and um, the factories. Somebody had to do it. And it right. was good. they gave the South permission to re-enslave people. And so I, that's why I think a lot of the um, Hairston slaves stayed as sharecroppers because they knew the second that they would leave that they would be arrested. And there's actually a, a chapter in the book that Henry Reincheck wrote about that, where my third great-grandfather mm. actually protected the newly um, emancipated slaves. Right. The KKK came to the Oak Hill Mansion, burning the cross on the front lawn, and demanded that he make all of the slaves leave. So well, that they would then be breaking the law. It was time yeah. to rebuild the railroad. And real quick, you mentioned the book. Tell, tell the listeners the name of the book. It's called The Hairstons in Black and White by Henry Weincheck. Okay, so listeners, it's uh, you can already tell it's going to be a good one. <laughs> um, and, you know, we, we normally go through our wild black shit. Um, we're not going to do that today because you are already getting a chance to know Diana through her blog and through the conversation. But I, I do want to flip our typical wild black, our go-to question on its head. We typically ask the guests, what do you love most about life while black? But today, and this comes from um, a close friend of the show, a brother named Sustin out in um, Houston. I posted, <laughs> I posted the question on all of my personal and wild black outlets, my social platforms. And I wanted to get people's thoughts on what would you ask the ancestors of the people who enslaved you? And this was Sustin's question, and I thought it warranted its own section. On Wild Black, we always ask, what do you love most about life while black? And I feel like most of the answers we get back are actually born from the experience of slavery. We hear our resilience. We hear our power, our strength, our resistance. We hear these themes echoed back week after week. And so many people also use the context of slavery to communicate that point. I am what I am today because of what my ancestors survived during the times of slavery. So I wanted to flip it on its head today. Art and I and all of our guests always mention, again, resiliency and strength. So we're sitting in the studio with an ancestor of someone who did the enslaving, and I wanted to ask her. We got those characteristics from our experience in slavery. What do you feel like you or your family got from the other side? Of slavery. What do you have today? What's one of the traits that you experience today that you can attribute to slavery and enslaving others? Um, I think I think it comes from my mother's childhood 
And what most people don't understand is when you were born into one of these families, right. you lived in the, at the plantation site and it was out in the country. Right. She didn't have a white friend until she was 16 years old and could drive a car. Right. So she grew up a white kid mm-hmm. in a sea of black children. Right. In fact, her brother used to always say that he thought all babies were born black and just a couple of them turned white. <laughs> they that that's all she knew. Right. You know, and so when she did move on and go to college and settle in Atlanta and, and have me and my sister, our, her family, um, you know, I think she brought with her this this just deep sense of justice. I mean, just right. a a kindness right. about race that I think you can't really experience unless you grew up like that. That's really interesting perspective. So the way your family originated here and the enslavement of people and then with your mother growing up surrounded by nothing but black people in a time where there was no enslavement going on. Mm-hmm. Very ironic. Created that, that empathy almost, that, mm-hmm. that understanding of this is all I know. I love, I love the way you put it, like not even realizing, thinking that all children were born black and then some changes. That's, that, that's kind of funny when you mm-hmm. really think about it. Mm-hmm. That, that's a child's perspective though. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, and it makes yeah. a lot of sense. It's also a side that being black in this country, we never think about. And, and I don't want any listeners to think that even for a second, we're downplaying the horrific nature of slavery. But what we are talking about is there are always multiple angles that we can look at. There are always new ways to understand. And the more we understand, the faster we can heal. The faster we heal, the faster we can begin to establish ourselves in this country the way we should and much like James Baldwin said, we cannot do it alone. So these conversations are very, very necessary. Art, you got any thoughts, brother? I'm soaking it in. I'm soaking <laughs> it in. I was, I was for our listeners. This is this is more of a listening episode and, and more of a reflection episode. Not necessarily one where you're going to hear um, Vince and I speak a lot about uh, the topic. We're, we're going to soak in this great information that we're going to get because it'll it'll absolutely help shape some narratives and shape how we see things and maybe shape it for the better in a different light. Absolutely. All right, so we're going to we're going to jump into the um the main portion of the interview and we've got a list of questions that we want to run past Diana, some of which have come directly from our listeners, some of our out of our own brains and some from just pure research. You ready? Mhm. So this very first question was, came from a listener, and I thought it was just a beautiful question to kind of kick off what we're talking about today. So how do you define humanity? Um, what that triggers for me is to, to reflect back on dignity, which is something that we're really um, big on at Our Black Ancestry. Mm-hmm. Um, Sharon and I, my business partner, Sharon, we've both been educated um, at EMU University. Right on trauma training and healing. And um, one of the speakers that you get to listen to, her name is Donna Hicks, and she talks about um, dignity. And she's a psychologist that works on the peace building team out in the Middle East. So she's constantly trying to put together peace agreements between Palestine and Israel, and they always fail. And so after 10 years of all these failed attempts, she stood back and she realized none of the agreements had dignity. Right. Every agreement that they had come to was going to stick it to the other side. Mm. And so she began to study dignity. And what dignity is, is recognizing the humanness in the other. And once they started crafting 
small agreements that included dignity, then they started having success. That makes a lot of sense. So, and I'm forming this question as I go, like hearing you bring up the, the thought of, of dignity takes me to more of a family question. Where, where does the rest of your family stand on the history that lives inside of your family? What are their, what are their viewpoints today on what's happened through your family? Um, then I, nobody talks about it. It's um, me and, and a first cousin are the only two that really work in this space. Gotcha, gotcha. Do you think for, before I even assume, why do you think that is? It makes people uncomfortable. Yeah. It's like getting on an Very elevator. Very uncomfortable, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it'd be funner to get on an elevator and talk to a stranger about Jesus. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that is true. So, and I didn't even know that the family history existed until Henry wrote the book, and which was what, 20 years ago. What was that? What was the ride like from when you began to first understand your family's history? What was that like for you? Well, I read the book, you know, 20 years ago when it came out. And um, it, it was pretty fascinating just historically, you know, right. a lot of the storylines. Um, and the message that I really took away from it was there's a storyline of Robert Harston. Mm-hmm. And he was one of the bigger owners in the dynasty. And he became an abolitionist. He was forced to marry his aunt, who was 45 years older than him. Right. So they obviously didn't consummate the marriage. <laughs> and um, he took on a, a wife that was um, a house slave. Right. And they had a child. And then Robert became an abolitionist. And he went back to his wife and said, I, I don't want to have anything to do with slavery. I want to sell any slave that has my name on the title and I want to send him back to Liberia, which is what he did. He sent wow. 17 of the slaves back to Liberia. And then he moved to Mississippi with his slave wife and slave daughter and lived a simple farmer's life. And where did he move from? Where was he at? when He, he was in life? Virginia. Gotcha. Danville, Virginia. And do you, do you know, what, what time frame was that? Um, like 1850. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. But but the thing that's interesting to me about that is it changed nothing but his life. It didn't stop slavery. It didn't. And if he was one of the biggest slave owners and he made a move like that, it was bigger than any one family. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Definitely a system. Yeah. And those 17 that he that he sent back to Liberia, hopefully and prayerfully, their lives were changed because he was able to send them back. And when you sent someone back to Liberia, you had to send them with a year's worth of living expenses. Oh, wow. Liberia wouldn't just take you. No, you had to have that you had to send them with a trunk full of money that would show the Liberian government that they would they were not going to be a burden to their their country wow. for a year until they get established and figure out how they were going to earn money in the country. So he did he sent 17 people with a year's worth of living expenses. Wow. I've actually found the contract between him and Ruth, and it lists the conditions of the sale right, and the, the names of the 17 people. That is so interesting. Again, these are stories that you never, that never bubble up. Yeah. So it, it also takes me to this. You mentioned if he had to send back 17 people to Liberia with enough dollars, currency at the time, to sustain themselves for a year. 
At State Farm, we're committed to uplifting Black futures. In collaboration with organizations like 100 Black Men and National Urban League, State Farm provides high school students with the opportunity to learn and apply best practice strategies for saving and investing, all while offering academic support, life skills, and exposure to college access programs to prepare these students for life after high school. Check out 100blackmen.org and nul.org to donate and learn more. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So they could be, mm-hmm. they could be productive members of that society. That meant his wealth position was stout. Mm-hmm. So we know that your family is one of the largest slave-owning families in history. Some, some documents I, I've seen have them listed as the largest, mm-hmm. some as one of the largest. Where did your family's wealth come from prior to the slave trade? I don't think they had any. When Peter came over, he came with a, a sack and a stick, and he was very poor in Ireland. That's why he left. In fact, he left his wife and I think three sons back in Ireland for many, many years when he came to settle, but he had nothing. So he came over and truly took advantage of what was then the American dream. Are you familiar with head rights? I am not. It was a system that the government in America established that if you were purchasing land for the purpose of agricultural development, mm-hmm. antebellum plantation life, then you got um, breaks on your taxes and and they made it financially feasible for you to set up agriculture and purchase slaves. Wow. And that was called head rights. And so that's why it exploded. That's why it blossomed the way that it did. It's because of the government. So it's government-funded slave purchases. Government um, encouraged. Wow. That is, again, I had no idea. Yeah, that. probably subsidized. Mm-hmm. Probably similar to what we do with farming. Yeah, that's you know, exactly what I was thinking. Industries yep. that we want to see grow. You know, it's been working like that for years. So from, from those early days, mm-hmm. and this was Peter, right? Peter. Okay. When, when Peter came over and began to build what became your family here and the wealth, how did he grow to its 42, 42 plantations across three states? Was that, were those outright owned by your family, all 42 of them? Um, I don't really know 100%, mm-hmm. but um, the Harsons kept marrying cousins. Right. So they always had it in the family. Right. And then when that family would grow, they'd build another plantation, plantation and that the kids would move to there. And um, I mean, I, I don't know how to answer beyond that. That's all, that's all good. We've talked about this a little bit, but what's your family's wealth position like today? My personal family or, or just the, <laughs> <laughs> You mean the, the Harstons overall? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's hundreds of thousands of people splintered and um, different directions. I mean, there's there's no Kennedy dynasty or right. there's Vanderbilt money or anything like that. We gotcha. all we all live simple lives in you know Middle America. Gotcha, gotcha. Do you all still have any? Of, do you still own the property from from any of the plantations from back in the day? No, I, most of them have fallen into. A lot of them are just burnt down or gone. Right. Um, the few that I know that are remaining. They're in good condition. Are were purchased by businesses like a, a bank or a chiropractor. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, but most of them have fallen into ruins. So, just from a from a name perspective, right? Having over ten thousand enslaved people 
under the Harrison plantations has to amount to a ton of people today. From your familiarity with the records, are, are you familiar with any of the names that have grown from what Peter started? What do you mean by familiar? So like, for instance, any of the surnames that have come, so the, the, the Harrisons and the Harsons are, are, are a family that has grown from slavery. Are there any other major relatives or ancestral ties that have, that, that have names today, like the Joneses or the Hickses? Or do you know any of the, any of the families that have grown from your family? Um, I don't know of any that have descended from us, but um, when Michelle Obama, when Barack Obama was first elected president, mm-hmm. um, a lady did the genealogy for him and she did it for Michelle Obama. Mm-hmm. And Michelle Obama was descended from a person named Dolly Jumper right. in Virginia, very close to, well, right in the middle of where all the plantations were that the family had. And um, there's a family member that has done a lot of the genealogy for the people that are descended from the plantations. And he has discovered that there were three Harristons that married into the Dolly Jumper line of Michelle Obama's family. Gotcha. So there's a distant connection to Dolly Jumper. Interesting. So one of the things I want to I wanna move into is a step away from the history a little bit. I want to talk about you personally and how you feel. You mentioned not knowing this information until the book was written 20 years ago. But now that you know and understanding the role that your ancestors played in slavery in this country, when you think back on your family, how, how do you feel about them? Well, I don't feel anything really from this. It was five, seven generations ago. Right. Um, I, I'm certainly not proud of what right. they did. But, you know, I barely was close to my grandmother and grandfather from Oak Hill. Gotcha. So I don't, I don't know who they might have even possibly been. Right. I think uh, that's fair. Because yeah. I mean, if, if I think back, like I, like I don't feel much for my great, great, great grandfather. Or I don't mean I don't know who he is. I could probably figure it out. But I guess I, I understand that answer. Like I don't, I feel connected to my mother, my father, mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. brother. People that you have interactions right. with that you can actually quantify. It's so distant. Like you, yeah. yeah. That, that makes sense. Like, yeah. you can't see it, like, to, to have a perspective on it because it's so far away. Yeah. Well, the most that I've learned about him is through Henry's book, when he tells some of the anecdotal stories yeah. of the people, um, good and bad. I mean, that's, that's the most I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that you, you learn about your family primarily the way I would learn about your family. You, just a book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So does, I know, I know your family doesn't talk about this a lot in general, but are there conversations about the history? Like, can, can you find other stories, whether through your mother or through your ancestry, written down, passed down? Can you find other stories that kind of, that add more context to what happened? No, I mean, nobody talks about it. But, but as interesting as when Henry's book came out, mm-hmm. every family member got a, a copy of that book. Mm-hmm. And they would write in the margins corrections for how Henry got it wrong. Really? And it was always really silly things. Like, the carpet was red. No, the carpet was blue. <laughs> you know, he got he got it mostly right, but it made people uncomfortable. <laughs> what? So that makes me think again. What happened to the family dynamic when that book dropped? Oh, a lot of people were very angry about it. Was it the fact that they thought he told the story wrong? That he wasn't fair? That like I, I almost related to like or he exposed it? Right. Well, you know, we have conversations about the barbershop and. Mm-hmm. 
how much of what happens in the barbershop, like the movie Barbershop caught flack because some of us felt like it was too open. You gave people who were not African-American or, or of color too much of a glimpse into what really happened, right? So was there any of that, like people upset that this is history, but it's our history. We don't want these secrets out. We don't want people to know what happened. Was there any of that involved? Well, I think because of so many generations of not talking about it, right? It, it, it's taboo, right? Yeah. You know, when, you, when you can't talk about it. And then for somebody to talk about it in such a big way was really hard for them to accept. Right. And so there, that's why there was the resistance. I know it had to be jarring. Yeah. And I actually, after I read the book, I didn't think it was that insulting. I, I, I thought he was pretty fair. But even then, it has, to, it has to come down to at least partially, like if for generations we weren't talking about it, this was new information to a lot of the family, or maybe not necessarily all new, but at least confirmation that some of the things that I heard were accurate. It's got to be, like, I, I, just, I just think about family dynamics and how a death in the family can shake up a family completely, let alone... I don't even know what word to use. Like, let alone this dynasty-type tie to slavery has got to be something that, like, throws people out of balance. And so impactful, right? Where, where the, the impact was so great, mm-hmm. right, on so many. Yeah. Because that's a, that's a, I think it's a great question. Is the family dynamic still a little... Uh, shaken by the book? I mean, even even now, or is it, later, yeah. or is it kind of back together? I, I would anticipate when he brought he brought that book out, some he may have got shunned by by many many well, folks. Well, I, I think the initial reaction of of the negativity to the book was the white families believed that Henry was on a witch hunt, and Henry even admittedly said, "I would I'm here to chronicle." what really happened in slave life and it's never going to be a good thing, right? Right. So what were, what were the Black Harrisons? What was their reaction when the book came out? I don't know. You know, I didn't know any at the time. Gotcha. I do now and I've, I've made it an Because you didn't even intentional... know this history until the book yeah. came yeah. out. Yeah. When you think about the story and you think about what happened and, and it's, it, it could be very easy for many people to say, hey, you know what, I'm just going to, not really engage and interact with with this level of depth of of, of slavery and, and how my ancestors had so much to do with it in America. What really inspired you to say, "Hey, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna try to do something right with knowing this information because it's not every day that people kind of take that mantle and say, "Hey, I'm gonna take a, a, a positive or a righteous position when I can easily." Or more easily, just kind of turn and say, "Hey, you I know can what? Be quiet. I can just I'm just not going. gonna. Yeah, I'm yeah. not gonna really engage. I'm just gonna live my life um, and not engage in that space." A, it's just the right thing to do. You know, these records are just sitting in a cardboard box in a library, and this is this is family history for people, right? And they deserve to be. I just feel like they deserve to be found. I, f- I really feel like the souls that are in these ledgers deserve to be found and be honored. And B. I have three children. I have three boys. Right. I don't want them to inherit the same legacy. I want them to inherit like, and see that their mom did something with it that's right. positive as opposed to just being selfish and pretending like it didn't happen. So when you talk about the ledgers, specifically that tie back to these 10,000 plus enslaved people, for African Americans today, how many people does that amount to? 10,000 records can answer questions for 
X number of African-Americans today? Well, the, the Hairston ledgers, if when we get them digitized and published, can provide ancestry to about a million people. Yeah. And we've, lo- we've um, located other large slave um, holding families that had similar types of records. Mm-hmm. So they're the top 12 slave owning families, if we could get all of their records in one place that's searchable, right. that would be about 4 million people. That is a lot of people. Wow. But there's a lot more records that we've we've indexed and cataloged and found. Right. And um, probably if we took that entire cache of all of those records with the family records, we could probably provide ancestry to about 7 million. That is, that's an amazing number. Um, and so, wow. <laughs> when we think about, I'm, I'll, I'll relay this to church. The, it's a common understanding that 20% of the people who attend church are responsible for 80% of the work that happens in the church. Mm-hmm. And, and I say that to try to, to try to relate it to this. You mentioned the largest 12 slave-owning families. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the fact that historically, African-Americans have been told over and over, records from slavery don't exist. Mm-hmm. They've been destroyed. They've been lost. And I know that's the case for some of them. But of those 12 largest slave-owning families... What percentage of the enslaved people do they still hold records for? Like, what percentage are there answers out there for? Well, the top 12 families represent the top 1% of slaveholders. Right. So the top 1% of slaveholders owned 30% of the people that were enslaved. So those top 12 families owned 30% of the total that were enslaved. Wow. And of, That's how it's skewed. Of those top of that top 1% of slave-owning families that equates to 12 today, how many have you been working with to try to access their records? It depends on what level of, of work. I mean, we have a private Facebook page that is doing research for 37,000 people. People go and they post their research and they share it on our right. private Facebook group. And then we have a website that has tutorials and data banks, GED matches, surname banks, um, that, you know, we have at least 10,000 unique hits a month at. So, right. uh, and I've personally helped people of Hairston descent, right. you know, right. find their lineage. But most of the records we have to use are in libraries or, you know, personal estate records or in um, uh, wills, um, those t- types of things. They're not online. So it's very tedious. Right. Once you get to 1870, there's nothing there, but there's going to be. That's awesome. And, and I know from conversations with you that you've personally spent time scanning, uploading, connecting people this, of your own time to, mm-hmm. to these records. So it, it, I, want, I want the people listening to understand on a larger scale what's happening. Mm-hmm. And so you, you're not just talking about the fact that these records exist, come get them. You are actively engaged in connecting people to these records. Yes. So I, I love it if you take a few moments and just talk to the listeners about some of this amazing work that's going on around your specific records and the records that you've been connected to of some of these other large families. Yes. Um, well, I, I have helped um, several people find which Harston plantation that they were descended from mm-hmm. through some of these records. And I created a separate website just for people that are descended from the um, Harston plantations. It's called HarstonFamilyGenealogy.com. And anything that I have located that is related to the Harston family, estate records, um, slave indexes, um, 
pictures of the ledgers, all of that is on that website and available to anybody that wants to go there. I was very insistent, especially in the beginning, that I'd never wanted uh, people to not have access to anything that I found. So I have digitized and scanned all of that stuff. And there's quite a bit of information just on HarristonFamilyGenealogy.com. But the work that I do with OurBlackAncestry.com with my business partner, Sharon Morgan, we have amassed... uh, huge amounts of collections that um, we have just been told by the Mormon church that they are going to build um, a database with using all of these records. So hopefully within the next two years, we should have a database online that is wholly dedicated for African-American genealogy. And that's bigger than your family's records. Much this is. bigger than just our records, yeah. So this, is, this starts to begin to get toward that four to seven million range that you talked right. about earlier, right? right. Right. And so what role is the Mormon church playing in that? They're going to build the database, which involves digitization, transcription. It's a lot of work. Yes, it's, tr- it's a tremendous amount of work. And when you think about just the, the Hairston papers or the Harston papers, mm-hmm. there, it's a 51 yards of, of boxes that they have. 51 and yards of that's boxes. That's half of a football field of boxes of papers. And so for people listening, 51 yards is about, what, 150 feet? Yeah, well, three feet to a yard, right? Yeah, three it's feet about, to a yard. It's yeah. a, it's a, that's that's, that's pretty big. Bo- so each box has hundreds of pages inside it. That's, that's how big, just, just, your family. just our family collection. So we're not, we're not talking about, the records you're talking about are not in a manila folder in a file <laughs> cabinet. They are boxes upon boxes upon boxes of records. and Of handwritten records. And we... And we talked about this a little bit, but I want to go back to it. They're records of birth, of death. They're records of marriage. It's records of the clothing at minister. Like, these records are pretty detailed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's amazing. They, now, they, there's loose papers, which mm-hmm. is where you'll find um, bills of sales and um, lists of purchased slaves that year. You know, those, those kind of business records are the loose papers. Right. But there's 15 hardbound ledgers that will list, I mean, basically it was estate inventories. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the first. Because this was a business. It was a business. Right. So the first third of this ledger would be listings of China, crystal, jewelry, types of um, luxury items. Right. The next third of the ledger is the cows and the pigs and the chickens. Right. The last third of the ledger is right. what they called the list of Negroes. Right. And that's where they would list the names right. of everybody that was enslaved at that time. And so there's 15 ledgers where you have 200, 300 pages at the back of each ledger with hundreds of people on each page listed. Wow. Have you ever totaled it up, the, the amount? No, because you'd have to. They're all handwritten uh, and they're all done differently. And they're, they're ref- there's, there's lists of babies that were born at Oak Hill, babies that were born at Berry Hill, babies that were born at Windsor. So they... They would mm-hmm. keep lists and then how many baby blankets were given away in January. And, you know, there were different oh, ways they recorded blankets. it. Yeah, there were different ways that they would record what is we now know as genealogical activity. Right. So, um, but that's all wow. in these bound ledgers. So the ledgers are the, the nut. I mean, that's, right. I call it the holy grail of the, right. the family genealogy for sure. But mm-hmm. I, I, I'm insisting that we digitize everything in those boxes because there's bills of sale. Right. And if you can determine, 
your bill of sale for your ancestor, then you there's a website you can go to called Voyages. Right. And this Emory professor has laid out the manifest for all of the slave ships for the transatlantic slave trade. Wow. And there was never more than one ship at port at the same day. So, so you, you can, access your records, you get this number, you go to Voyages, and now that unlocks even more information. Then you see the manifest for the ship, and mm-hmm. it'll tell you the different ports of call that it traveled on its way to Virginia. So you're closer to where your family actually came from now. You, you can trace back to what port you left Africa out of. And you'll never find the name because they changed the names. Right. But if you can get to that original bill of sale, which are in these 51 feet or, or uh, yards, yards, then you can trace it back to the date and then you can find your ship and then you can find what port you left Africa out of. That's my dream. And how, how cooperative are the other families, the other large slave-owning families? And how thorough are their, record, are their records? I haven't talked to them. Sharon has met them at other... Um, activities that she's participated in, coming to the table. I, I think Sharon yep. talked a little bit about that. And listeners, Sharon was on an earlier episode of Wild Black. I'll have the name in the um, episode notes because I can't remember right now. But so she's met them through coming to the table. Right. And she, she's had the dialogue with them that they have committed their records. I haven't met any of them. Gotcha. Uh, the episode was called You Are the Dream... Find the dreamers, I believe. Discover I, the dreamers, that's, probably. That's a shame. She had to come tell me to make wrong. That's my line. I made it up. That's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, expectation. I know this is something that, that you've put a lot of work into over the, over the years. As the Mormon church builds this database, do you have any idea what the interface will be like at the end? Will it be me going to some website that's been dedicated by the Mormon church, typing in my name or surnames or family names. Do you, what's the expectation? What, is the, what should the tool look like at the end? Uh, it'll function a lot like current websites do today. Okay. That's the hope, you know, that they'll, and you'll find these, these PDFs of these pages of these ledgers will pull up and then there'll be a transcription page attached to it that will tell you and, and transcribe what the names and the dates and the, and the times are. Right. And it'll be like any other ancestry search. And you said you think this is two years out, roughly. I, yeah, at least to do all the. I mean, it's a lot to the the digitize because that that's a that's a page by page process of scanning in, and mm-hmm. then I'm sure there's mm-hmm. some back end kind of figuring that has to go in with for data entry that has to be associated yeah. with this type of stuff. Yeah, transitioning handwriting into actual. Well, and when you think about the list, text. like say the list in the ledgers, mm-hmm. so it, the first page would say you know, Peter Harston's estate, 1853, and then it would start listing the names. Well, then you turn the page. It doesn't say Peter Harston's estate, 1853 on that page, right? Because right. they're all handwritten. So you're going to have to make sure uh, manually that work. you have a header and footer for every one of those pages because they're, they're not going to rewrite that. So you can't just tra- transcribe what's on that page. You have to put the reference to what, you know, who, what a state it was and right. what year it was. Right. So outside of what's going on with the Mormon church, I know there's been interest from production studios and Hollywood for this story. Can you talk a little bit about what, what you see coming down the pipe there? Um, I know that um, Henry's stories in his mm-hmm. book that he wrote, um, Sony Pictures has, has paid for the rights to produce 
some of the storylines mm-hmm. and that I've heard there's a director and a producer attached to the project. So Diana, one question for, for people listening, anyone who has the Harrison or Harrison family name and wants to know more or wants to see what they can learn, what do you recommend that they do? I would go to ourblackancestry.com and join the membership. It's $25 a year, which I think is very reasonable. Yep. And uh, we have a surname matching database right. in the membership side of the website. Um, and if you if you go in and you put in your surname, then you'll get shared research from other people that have been researching that same lineage. And I know that outside of what's going on with the Mormon church and your passions for connecting people, you and Sharon have trainings that you do together, correct? Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. It's called Diversity Dialogues. And um, it, it sort of grew naturally out of the work that we did individually with people. Right. That when you when you help somebody find their ancestor and it's it's during slavery time, it's it's painful. It's a painful thing. And right. so Sharon and I have become both trained formally and informally about becoming healers and how how you help people reconcile that that history and that truth. Right. And um about three years ago I told Sharon, I said, you know, we really need to take what we do um one on one with people and and do it on a larger scale because I think I think this could help heal the race issue in our country or at least be a very good first step. Right. So Sharon and I have both uh, attended Eastern Mennonite University where we took that star training, which is all about trauma training. Right. And it's about how trauma is just going to continue um, to transfer uh, unless it gets transformed. And Very so I think point. that's why we still have a race issue in our country today is we haven't healed from that original wound right. of slavery. And the only way you can do that is through acknowledgement, restorative justice, peace, and kindness. So that it, the diversity training is, is really where my big passion is because I think it's the lessons that we can learn out of history that started in slavery. We can take that lesson and we can start to, to heal as a nation. Do you think we can get there? Do, do I think we can get there? Absolutely. Good. Absolutely. I think the biggest mistake we make is that we look for external solutions for our problem on race. Right. You know, pass a law, make a church do something special, you know, create a business. Right. The secret to racial healing is within each of us. It's just simple. It's really simple. It's forgiveness and it's love. It's and we all possess that if we can get ourselves to that point where we can use what we already possess right. to create that. And it's interesting because Sharon made a very similar point when, when I sat down with her and she talked about the element of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And being black in this country, it's very easy for me to reflect upon slavery and just be angry at what happened. Um, and it's very easy for me to look at the world and expect an apology. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very hard for me to look at other people and even consider forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And as I, as I opened this question up to our, our social platforms, I got a lot of both back. I got a lot of people who came back and said things like, I want to ask them why. I want One person came back and said, I want to ask them how hot is hell? Another came back and said, I want to ask them 
could I enslave you for 200 years? Um, and that was the angry side. There was a whole other side that came back and said, I want to tell them I love them. Um, I want to tell them that I forgive them for what they did to people that I don't know. They, they, they may mention the very same thing you did. It happened so long ago. I feel the effects, but I don't know those people. So I have a very hard time connecting to them, much like yourself in that lineage that descended from those who pushed the atrocities of slavery. So opening that question up, it was a very personal thing for me because one, I knew I wasn't big enough or broad enough to answer or to create these questions. But two, having to digest what came back was tough mm-hmm. because you see all aspect of emotion come back. And this was in a matter of moments that I got flooded with all of these answers back. And it's, it is, forgiveness is a, is a very tough thing sometimes. Um, but I am optimistic that we can find a way to actually forgive. And I think it has to happen on both sides. You mentioned we have to, um, I forget the word that you actually used. But we definitely ha- we have to acknowledge, we have to accept, we have to forgive. And I've heard some people say we have to forget. I don't know that I agree with that piece. Art, right, what, what do you think, brother? I'm hopeful, but through my studies and education and experiences, um, the depth of damage within within the communities is is of, of people of color and African Americans particularly uh, is so great mm-hmm. um, that. There has to be, in order to forgive, there has to be more components to, and you used a word that I can't, re- I can't remember what you did, but it made me think about reconciliation or how do you make something that has been systemically wrong right, mm-hmm. right? And how do you, what does that look like? And this is bigger than, than you know, one family. This is like a um, more of a, 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 a governmental construct to say, hey, we allowed something that was absolutely inhumane and horrible um, to go on in our country for X amount of time. This is what we need to do to, or to, in order to try to heal that wound and then rectify that so we can get to a point of where a people can forgive the current situation or the situation that led to the situation that many African Americans, many um, people of color are living in today. A lot of people are going to have to come to that realization that right hey, this was wrong, right, openly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I applaud you and, and saying, hey, I want to do something right. A lot of people are going to have to come to that realization mm-hmm. and make some steps that would be right in order to get us to a point of where I think many people can begin to really heal. Well, I think the reason that we can't begin healing is because it started in slavery. Mm-hmm. And then it just continued in other forms of oppression. Exactly. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and, it, and it has not stopped it has even not stopped. today. So it's like, because I know a lot of our listeners are going are gonna to be in a situation where they're like, wait a minute, forgive? How do we even get right. to the component of forgiveness when we're still going through it right when now? we're still it's, being oppressed. Still right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. And, and it stems from that. So it's, it's like, are we getting better? No, I think it just transformed into something different. Yeah. And now we got to figure out, like, how do we make everyone realize that, hey, this is, this is just transferred into something. Well, I mentioned the slave labor camps earlier. Mm-hmm. Those, the slave labor camps went on for 80 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they didn't end until FDR wrote something called a circular letter right. that said it had to stop. And if you went to the slave labor camp, you didn't, you didn't go back. You died at the slave labor camp. That was camp. it. 
Yeah. And the only records they had to be accountable for was your arrest record and why you had to be sent there. But you didn't return. They didn't have to have a death certificate filed. They didn't have to have any paperwork on you. Mm-hmm. And you just were rounded up in the, the slave labor camps were far worse than slavery. And, and folks, for you all listening, if you want to know more about that, um, 13th on Netflix is a, a good source of information about what Diana's talking about in regards mm-hmm. to the 13th Amendment. But, you know, that went on for 80 years. And um, when you look at the peonage system and the slave labor camps mm-hmm. and Jim Crow, I mean, the, there were almost 800,000 people that were re-enslaved after emancipation. That's nearly a quarter of the people that were emancipated. We're back. We're back mm-hmm. for 80 years. That's why we're not getting over it. Right. Right? Yeah. yeah. I think what I... Because it never our, ended. You brought up a great point. I think one of the things, when I think about myself personally, one of the things that I, I get frustrated with is I have a recognition of a lot of the areas that slavery is still impacting today, a lot of the areas of oppression. Mm-hmm. And I think as a society, holistically, not individually, but in, in, in large pockets, you see people oftentimes admit to the blatant, obvious racism. If someone yeah. gets called a nigger... I right. Get, oh, get, that's horrible. That. We should... Right. But it gets it's so offensive to me when I hear someone say, well, slavery was 400 years ago. Get over it. When I, when I, when I bring up the wealth gap, when I bring up mm-hmm. property ownership, when you bring... I mean, you can... There's, Incarceration Literally, rates. there's I mean, so it, many it, elements you could bring up. Mm-hmm. And what, what I would love to see happen is if as a nation of people, and not just African-American people, but all American people who participated in the act of slavery, which is literally all of us, some way or some form, if there was an acceptance of the way that slavery has weaved itself through our government, our establishment, our country, you use the word systematic, and I think it's a great word, the fact that elements of slavery are in every aspect of my life in this country. Like, I think for me personally, that would be a great place. If I could find a way, if we could find a way to get people to openly admit the fact that slavery impacted so many elements of our lives that still impact us daily right now. Yeah, I think it's, the, I mean, the recognition is is the first piece, right? And yeah. then moving forward, like, it's, it's almost like you got to reweave the fabric of of the, the, the government, the, the structure of how it has formed in order for it to, to right the wrong, right? Because it, it, it is, it, it, I mean, every aspect of, of life being an African-American, you, if, you, if you research, you can pull it back into, you feel some kind of way about police because of right. X, mm-hmm. right? You feel some way about Wall Street because of Y. Yeah. Like, you can, you can tie everything back. You feel some kind of way about projects and poverty right. because of this. You mm-hmm. feel some way about, you know, um, government assistance. Yeah. This is Y, right? It's, I mean, you, you tie it back and it gets really, really deep. Mm-hmm. Such, really a, such a tough topic mm-hmm. in general. Diana, we've talked about a whole lot today. Is there anything that you want to tell the people listening? Yeah. Um, well, one of the things we haven't touched on that, that I use a lot in our diversity dialogues training that mm-hmm. really helps white people understand um, is talking about lynchings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you, the new memorial, they've got 4,400 people memorialized mm-hmm. at the new... Um, museum and that's 4,400 murders. Yeah, that's not just murders, but 4,400 people that when they would have a lynching in the South, they would publish it in the newspaper. They would advertise it. 
you know, the whites would show up with their white gloves and their five-year-old child and a casserole dish and, and watch the murder. And then they would dismember the bodies and take the bodies home as souvenirs. And, and white America doesn't understand that. They think that these lynchings and these KKK activity, that that was some other facet of our society. Right. Think about all the people that had to know about one lynching. Mm-hmm. Okay. The guy that's typesetting the newspaper, right? He's having to pull L, Y, N. I mean, and he had to have told people, you know, and it's in the paper. What if I put it in the paper this Saturday night? I'm going to murder somebody at my house. Right. Hey, hey I need bring witnesses. Mm-hmm. Bring a dish, and I need a lot of witnesses. Right. And then nothing ever happened to me after I did that. Yeah. I it's think unheard that's what, of. I think that's part of what was so hurtful about what just happened in Mississippi. Um, was the she was running for Senate? What was her name? I cannot remember her name. When she said, um, "I'd be front row." Oh, uh, yeah, I can't remember her name either. Um, but re- regardless, like I think I think that's a good point because we're starting to see speak of lynching like increase dramatically. Mm-hmm. At least on my timeline, it is right, and, mm-hmm. and the things mm-hmm. that I read on. And one argument I see come back. I, I actually published a post the other day. And it was about um, Alton Sterling's son was accused of, I think, sexual molestation. And one of my favorite, quote-unquote, friendly websites is Blue Lives Matter. Um, I go there because I feel like the truth often lives in our comments. And I, I go there to see what people are saying. And there was an article about Alton Sterling's son. Alton Sterling was the, the brother that was murdered in Baton Rouge a couple of years ago mm-hmm. by the police. And... I lost count of the number of times lynch him was written. And anytime you double clicked inside of that comment, there'd be one person who would say, this is racist, shut it down, quit it. And there'd be 30 people who came behind that one person and said, you must have forgot white people hung too. And it's, it's just so offensive to me because regardless to if a white person or a black person was hung. The perception of lynching is forever tied to black people via slavery. But I think we're going down a whole nother conversation, so I'm going to be quiet. <laughs> well, I, have, I have one other thing that I like to tell. I want to turn it back this, over to you, please. Subject, that, that I think kind of humanizes it for people. Right. Um, I was attending a NAACP breakfast for Black History Month one a couple years ago. And there was a gentleman, rather elderly, probably 80s, um, right. that stood up and told his story of nearly being lynched. Mm. And he was from Cairo, Georgia. And he um, was just walking home at, at night after his, his work. And the truck pulls up, they grab him, they tie him, they put the hood on him, they take him up to the, to the farm and put the you know, noose around his neck. And, and then he hears a car coming in the distance and he, he can see the lights through the burlap sack. Mm. And the truck pulls up and, and the guy gets out of the truck and he says, who are we doing tonight, boys? And they took the hood off and he looked at him and he went, well, you can't do him. He does my mama's lawn. Mm. And they cut his ropes off and let him go. And that, that story and that, that, that rendition of that, what happened is just, wow. it, it, it really makes you understand, you know, how unfair it was and how discriminant it was. Man. Just the the casual comment of who we doing tonight, boys, is 
rough. Like this is this is what we do every night. This is our entertainment. This is yeah, this yeah. is what we do. It wasn't an isolated part of the culture. Mm. It, it, it was pervasive in white America. Mm-hmm. And we can't say, oh well, my ancestors didn't know about that kind of stuff, or my ancestors didn't participate. You, a, you don't know that. <laughs> you, right. Nobody really knows. Mm-hmm. But it was far more public than people give it yeah. credit for. It's in the paper. I mean, it's in the paper. You bring it. How many people were were convicted of lynching? Yeah. yeah. How many white people went to jail for lynching? I would assume none. Mm. Yeah. Even if there was a trial, they probably got off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. So. Okay. <laughs> Heavy episode. Heavy episode alert. I, str- <laughs> I struggle every time we talk about this. I mean, I'm sitting yeah. over here like, <laughs> Me too. I'm hugging I, my I, computer. Yeah. I hadn't even noticed. Mentally, it has put me in a place. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Okay. Diana, um, one... Thank you for coming on. We appreciate it. Two, it's funny. Now, you, you've been here twice. You were here with Sharon, uh, which was another heavy, heavy time. I almost feel like we need to bring you back so you can see what this place is normally like. Yeah, yes. <laughs> right. Right. Like, these right. are very different episodes. I can, I, being very, I'm, I try to be very transparent. Like, the way I feel going through them is always different because I'm so passionate about this. But every time I'm caught off guard as to how much it affects me even having the conversation. So one, two, or three. Hell, I don't remember what number. Thank you. Uh, We got to get you back so we can have a fun conversation and see what this is normally like. And the last thing is, even though we kind of did this already, if there's anything we missed, anything you want to tell people, please tell them how to contact you, where to contact you, where you'll be next, what's going on. Just take a few moments, tell them that, and then we'll close out. Well, you can always go to HairstonFamilyGenealogy.com. And, and I recommend if you think you're descended from the family, please go visit it. There's lots of information. There's actually four pictures of uh, four gun permits that I have found in my research, which I think are pretty, it's pretty crazy that, that the white slave holders gave gun permits to their slaves and the slaves carried guns. So, um, so there's some really different information on the website. And you can always reach me at ourblackancestry.com. And I just encourage people to go check out ourblackancestry.com and see what, what they can learn from their family history. And hopefully we will have some really exciting things coming in the next couple of years with databases that are going to be far more productive than we have currently online. I can't wait to see what happens with this, the stuff with the Mormon church. I think that's huge. And th- they've done this kind of thing before. They did the Freedman Bureau yeah. project, which they did a fabulous job. And I'm really excited that they're going to be able to do this for these records and for ourblackancestry.com. Can't wait. Art, you got anything, man? Nope, I do not. (laughs) I do not. All right, Think and reflect (laughs) is what I would probably say. Think and reflect. Think, reflect, and research. Listen, I'm going to stop hugging my computer. (laughs) 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 Try to uh, find myself again. No words today. Nothing to really close out with. This is um, just listen to the episode again. See what you can get from it, and tell me. Until then, until next time. <laughs> peace. <laughs>